You lock those doors. Duck. It's Miller time. Dr. Gordon Miller time, that is. And I'm your co-host, David Madeira, joined by the aforementioned Dr. Miller. And I'm thrilled to be having this conversation tonight. I did actually get a chance to do my homework, Professor. And I uh, read the article that you assigned. And I'm prepared with some questions. Sounds great. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it's a, it's a, I'm really excited to be back. I know we've been gone for a few weeks. Um, I've just got back. My wife and I just got back from Waco for my graduation. And uh, uh, we went and visited your son one week. And then I got sick with uh, COVID or the flu or something. Who knows? Uh, but I was out, uh, out for a week or so. So it's nice to be back and doing this. And you're about to start your teaching duties, yes? Yeah, classes start tomorrow. Um, this semester, I'll be teaching Tuesday and Thursday, so my classes will start Tuesday. Uh, but yeah, King's College gets uh, up and running tomorrow. And what are you teaching? Uh, I'll be teaching three sections of strategic management and a section of entrepreneurial business management. So. Which is, both of those are what you have yeah. your PhD in. Yes, uh, very, very close to my uh, areas of expertise. So very How exciting. How exciting. Is there uh, a possibility that people would be able to virtually attend your lectures or is that not allowed? Um, I'd, I'd have to, uh, there's probably some legal issues around that. But, um, I would imagine not. I mean, you're yeah. paid to be a professor yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, but I mean, is there, is there, a, I was wondering if there's like an online enrollment. I didn't mean just like, Oh, no. just for free. Yeah. Um, I mean, like no, if somebody uh, wants to take you could, your class. Yeah, I mean, you, you could certainly enroll on Kings online. Uh, in the future, there may be some offerings for um, some sort of online uh, offering for my courses. Uh, that's something that may, that we may be able to work out, but for right now. But not right not, now. That's not really something that we're doing. Okay, cool. Uh, are you pretty psyched about it? I'm super excited. Uh, students here at Kings, um, just seemed great. The community seems great. And I can't wait to get started. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, speaking of getting started, let's jump right in. Uh, <laughs> we've been talking about various aspects of practical application of the theory, because my big objection concern is that I, I really need to see something in practice before I'm ready to accept anarcho-capitalism. I'm a capitalist, but I'm a, a traditionalist, a conservative. And by the way, I may lose power because I'm in the middle of one of Florida's famous lightning storms. Oh, so fun. if I, yeah, so hurricane if, season down there. So if I get, yeah, if I get zapped, just keep talking. Don't just don't <laughs> let it stop you. Um, but um, there was just a big boom. I don't know if you could hear it, but there was a there was a giant boom that shook the whole place here. Um, so when I when I read this article, I did have some questions, and the article comes from the Mises Institute. And it is looking at the Wild West. Uh, there is a premise uh, forwarded in this article that I cannot abide. Uh, the author of this article suggests that Hollywood may have gotten history wrong. And I, I just don't see how that's possible. <laughs> yeah, Hollywood never gets anything right. Never, so never. Right. So, talk, so start by talking about that, about the old Western, because, of course, uh, it's all about, um, you know, just shoot them up. Everybody, you know, the, the gun is the law and there's lots of people getting killed everywhere. And, right. uh, you know, so why yeah. is that not 
Why is that not true? Yeah, so I mean, that mythology largely comes from the old westerns in the early 20th century, Wyatt Earp, and all those, all the old cowboy stories and things like that. But uh, they're largely exaggerated, and to a large extent, the the sort of popular Hollywood uh, wild, wild west is not very reflective of the actual west. And so, more like act- a, it's more like a John Bunyan story, right? Or uh- Fair. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it is uh, more relatively oriented towards peaceful exchange than it was. I, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I gotta, I gotta interrupt myself there. I meant John Henry, John Henry, uh, okay, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the guy who built the, the railroads. The, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I said John Bunyan and, the whole, and I'm looking at this blank expression on your face and you can just call me out like, dude, John Bunyan not have anything to do with the wild west. John Henry. I was, I was a little bit wondering. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a it's an apocryphal story like Pecos Bill and all those sure. stories where they get larger and larger and larger than life. And they tell uh, <clears throat> a certain truth, but it's mostly a parable and it's very hyperbolic. Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely instances of violence in the Old West. Um, this particular article, by the way, comes from uh, Dr. Peter J. Hill and uh, Terry Anderson. Uh, and uh, they've actually expanded this research into a book called The Not-So-Wild Wild West. This is a sort of short-form article uh, expressing their research. Uh, I read the book several years ago, um, but the article does a good job of sort of su- uh, summing up the big points around cattlemen's associations and land rights clubs or, or land claim clubs, uh, miners' organizations, uh, and wagon trains. Uh, there's also some little anecdotes about how Native Americans uh, treated the bison, uh, you know, some of the environmental issues that were engaged uh, in the Old West, as I prefer to call it. Um, and really, uh, these authors sort of popularized, uh, to a large extent, free market environmentalism. So, uh, you know, it, it's kind of talking about how markets can solve many of the environmental problems and do a much better job of it. Uh, than states often do. Um, But yeah, uh, generally speaking, uh, the Wild West was characterized much more by uh, peaceful exchange and peaceful uh, resolution of disputes through arbitration than it was through violence and uh, um, gunfighting, as the sort of mythos would have you believe. Uh, This doesn't mean that that stuff didn't exist. Um, It definitely did. But one of the things that I like to point out is just like airline crashes. The reason that airline crashes are so notable is because they're so rare, right? Uh, the reason that we have these dramatic stories and uh, these really huge events is because you know they, they weren't common. Right. Generally speaking, the news is dominated by the things that will grab your attention, which are things that are unusual. So right. murders just predominate, even modern news. And you'd think you know, they're going on all around you every day. The, the fact is, statistically, your chance of being murdered, unless you live in a major U.S. city, is fairly low. And even there, statistically speaking, it's still extremely unusual. Right. Uh, there's an interesting statistic. Um, uh, P.J. Hill did a lecture with the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech uh, on his work with the Old West. And he opens up this lecture by asking, uh, and an exam question to, to the presenters there, or to the audience there. Um, and the question was, in all of the Western states from 1859 to 1900, uh, excluding Texas, they, they do exclude Texas, but all the other 
uh, Old West. How many uh, bank robberies do you think there were? Hundreds. 41 years. Uh, Hundreds. It must have been every other week. The best estimate was about 8 to 12. Wait, how? what was the time period? 1859 to 1900. The so best estimates. 41 years. 41 years, there were eight bank robberies. Oh, get out. Eight to 12, something like that. No um, kidding. Yeah, uh, I, you can. they cite the research <laughs> on this and everything, but yeah, it's just, it, it's, people have this um, notion that, you know, this was happening all the time. And one of the explanations, I mean, uh, when you stop to think about it, uh, it really makes sense that there would be very few bank robberies. Um, a lot of the people own guns. So if you're going into a bank and robbing the bank, and, you know, it's spreading around the town, you know, there's a bank robbery going on. What do you think is going to happen as soon as you leave the bank and you start trying to escape the town? Everyone's going to come out in, with their guns. No, no. In all the old Westerns, they're all ladies and they all run <laughs> for cover. Right. That's what happens. Right. They all run for cover and they wait right. for a sheriff to come and save them. Right. The federal government sends a sheriff in and saves the day. Come on. I know my history. I've watched lots <laughs> of Westerns. Come on. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're going to get shot. So there's a huge, yeah. <laughs> there's a huge from, incentive from everywhere, not... like from everywhere. That's the point is like every window would have a sniper. Right. Um, there's a huge incentive to for criminals not to rob banks. Right. It, it, now that doesn't mean it's going to stop it entirely, but again, we're not living well, in Nirvana, but, right? But a, dozen, to... but a dozen examples over a 41, 41. year period. Yeah. That's, it's... that's un, unreal. And, right. and yet, to your point, it does make sense because a- anywhere where there is, I mean, look, the, the modern, a lot of modern American churches have a lot of people concealed carry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not saying that the churches don't occasionally get attacked, but I, I know, I know in a lot of churches, especially here in the South, and it's happened. There are multiple examples of people who did not get out alive because somebody with a gun made short work of whatever attempt was being made. Right. So that so that makes a lot of sense based on our experience. If you step back from it, sort of like your airplane example, if you step back from it and you think about it for a second, it doesn't. It just doesn't make sense that it would be this lawless place. Right. Um, and I think that's the image that a lot of people have is this chaotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when you have a lot of people, a lot of resources, uh, the and there's no you know formal governing authority. Now, that and that's a that's I, that's a bad way to phrase that. There was a governing authority, but a top-down monopoly governing authority, right? Uh, well, let's get but, into that. Yeah, let's jump right into that. The the idea of anarcho-capitalist because it has the word anarchy, which the the common thought about anarchy is just like Lord of the Flies, right? And, yeah. and that's certainly how when I hear you or anybody else say anarchy, that's what comes into my head. But when you use the term anarcho-capitalist, that is not at all what you're suggesting. It's not a free-for-all in any no. way. Yeah, and I mean, I think this gets back to the meaning of the word anarchy, right? It means no archon. Uh, anarchy doesn't mean no rules. It means no rulers, right? And by rulers, we mean somebody who wields a monopoly on the power of coercion, right? Uh, whether that be a dictator, a despot, or a benevolent government. Uh, so I, I think it's really important to recognize this competitive aspect and forms of governance and the voluntary aspect and forms of governance that 
Uh, you're allowed to enter into relationships with other people uh, for system for order and systems of rules and a rule of law, right? But you're also allowed to leave that and join with others that uh, may express, may, it may look a little different and fit your particular uh, needs or circumstances more effectively. Right. And one of the things that's happened over generations in America is the power has continually moved just the opposite direction. It's moved up and up and up and up, and it's been centralized and centralized until we get to the point where we're going through the pandemic. And on TV, they're announcing we're, we're shutting down the country. And at that time, I was scratching my head, like saying, under what authority, by, by whose uh, uh, judicial rule do you have the right to do these unprecedented things? And we're now okay. seeing in state elections all across the country pushback. I don't know if you uh, heard about this, but in Arizona, on the Republican side, the non-establishment sort of Trumpian Republican conservative who is saying that she's going to follow the path of Florida's governor, DeSantis, and pull power away from the federal government and bring it back to the state, that, that seems to be a predominant trend that's going on. So you had this authoritarian move, and now you're seeing people push harder in the opposite direction. And all you're saying is, if I understand you correctly, not nearly far enough. Yeah, um, I mean, we're taking we're taking the idea of states' rights and bringing it down to individual rights and property owners' rights, right? Like that's what anarcho-capitalism is about. It's reducing that sphere of influence uh, to where you know the most responsive people to the costs and benefits of any given decision are going to be the ones making the decisions, right? The yeah, ones and that so are actually effective. Yeah, and so that's one of the interesting things that I thought about this article, that it, it made a, a point that I hadn't really completely grasped or appreciated, which is that this type of system actually maximizes peace because if someone doesn't like the situation they're in, changing that situation is relatively easy. Right. Yeah, uh, you you. A lot of the times, there's plenty of stories, especially with wagon trains, uh, that the authors of this article address, uh, where you know they would have a uh, a dispute over resources, uh, and instead of pulling out their guns and shooting each other over it, they would either come to some renegotiation, or if they couldn't uh, come to a renegotiation, uh, they would dissolve their relationship. Um, and either sell off resources to the individuals that owned them. One of the interesting things, especially with wagon trails, is they would have messes wherever, where you know you would have sort of the collective uh, grouping of private assets or private resources, but everyone still retained uh, private control, so they could pull back their assets uh, or their resources or their goods, and you know go off and either work by themselves or find another group uh, to. Um, enter into that same sort of relationship with. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was mostly peaceful. Uh, the big reason for this, if you think about it, is if you pull out your guns and start shooting, what happens? Stuff gets destroyed, people lose their lives, right? So there's a big incentive not to do that, especially when you realize, hey, I might be the one who gets shot in this, right? Um, so it, it's very much, there's very much a strong incentive to figure out a peaceful solution, even when there isn't a government or some other you know, uh, entity there to, you know, enforce that or to force that. Yeah, well, and one of the things that I saw in this uh, several times is the idea of 
no monopoly on force. Right. Right. So the, the lower you take that, the more democratic, and that is the sense that there's less government, the lower you take that, the more incentive there is to do the right thing. Because if you're, if you're in, for instance, a gun-free zone, right, and you're the only guy with a gun, well, then you have very little incentive beyond the police, you know, beyond a, a, a government force. You have very right. little incentive to comply or be mm-hmm. civil because you're the guy with the power. And yeah. of course, what's that saying? When seconds count, the police will be there in minutes. That's that's what the criminal counts on, right? Right. Is that he knows it's part of every heist movie, right? Somebody times when the guards go by and they know every 37 seconds he turns that way. And But what if everybody is a guard? What if everybody has the right. ability to be a part of that? Well, then the incentives all go in the direction of, hey, let's let's figure something else out other than stealing. Right. And I can't remember what the uh, st- the actual statistic on it was. It was bizarre. But uh, police departments in Washington, D.C. and police departments in New York City, they, you know, a lot of them will build around the idea of to protect and serve. Um, they're not really there to protect you. And in a few court cases, uh, the judges have even found that they have no legal obligation to protect you. Right. That if they screw up their job, they're not liable for it. Um, so that's a huge incentive problem. Uh, There's also the issue that they just don't have the resources or the time to get there a lot of times. A lot of what police departments do, especially in murder cases or robbery cases or whatever it might be, is show up to investigate and file a report. They very little, very rarely do they actually prevent the crime in question. Right. And I've had a, I've had a personal situation where in fact, that was exactly the case. And it took multiple phone calls over an extended period of time and multiple violations of the court's order to get anyone to take action. And I I didn't necessarily blame the police, but the fact is that there was just no way to get action until we made a bigger and bigger and bigger noise. And that's, and that's from a person who has some resources, right? I'm a person who's got uh, higher education and I've got uh, the ability financially to be able to put together a security system and all that sort of thing. Uh, one of the one of the things that I thought was very interesting, and maybe you can expound on this, is this concept of a shelling point. S C H E L L I N G. Yeah. Uh, so a shelling point is the idea that we have some sort of culture or history where there are certain norms that have become ingrained in our minds as the law. Regard, and this is where it's important, again, to separate the law from the legal code, right? The legal code is what the government, the, you know, the, the quote-unquote laws that the government passes and the mm-hmm. rules that they codify. The law is what the norms of society are, what people actually do. Um, again, I know I've used this example before, but I think it's really helpful to ingrain this concept. Uh, when Take a speed limit, for, for instance. If you, most people understand that if you go five or ten miles over the speed limit, Cops aren't going to pay attention to it, right? But the legal code says that the speed limit is 70 or 75, right? That's the legal code. The actual law is five or 10 miles over the speed limit because that's what's enforced. That's what people understand, right? That's the law. And when we talk about shelling points uh, in particular, it's really making reference to the shared consensus of what the law should be, right? So that if we go into... Uh, an area without a formalized codified um, authority figure, 
we all kind of recognize, well, oh, well, you know, it's not right to shoot each other. It's not right to kill each other. It's not right uh, to do these kind of things. Like we need to relate in these cer certain ways. Um, where those shelling points exist, it's a lot easier to establish informal norms. Where they don't exist, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, yeah. My argument would be that that's something, I mean, with new, with new institutions, that's just something that takes time, right? That norms take time to become established, right? And oftentimes they're established informally or from the bottom up anyhow. Uh, whenever there's a top-down legal code, it usually comes after the norm itself has been established. Uh, oftentimes governments will just codify things that have already occurred. Um, a yeah, great, and a great, a great example of this is something like the minimum wage. Um, you know, I know there have been plenty of researchers that have looked at this and that um, rises in the real wage always, almost always preempt rises in the minimum wage. This doesn't always hold true, but um, usually the minimum wage, the, a rise in the legal minimum wage uh, lags the rise in the real wage. Yeah, and I think you're, you're seeing uh, culturally in this moment a huge shift in the law relative to what is permissible and impermissible in society. And it's, it's not at all related to what the norms are. People are scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, all of a sudden you could get fired for saying this when five or 10 years ago, if you said that you'd have no problem. Like that was pretty much widely accepted. And this kind of decentralized system provides protections against that because everybody, if you're going to make, a change from the shell shelling point. Am I saying that right? Correct. Yeah. If you're going to make a change from that shelling point, you're going to need consensus. You're not going to be able to do it from the top down because people right. will just say, well, forget it. I'm not, I'm not playing that game. Right. I think COVID's a great example of that, right? Where the federal government tried to come in mm -hmm. and insist on vaccine mandates and masking, and they got away with it to some extent. Um, and there are a lot of people who, um, you know, had very bad outcomes, got fired from their jobs. Um, yeah. We have some, we have some personal experiences with that. Yes, we do. Um, and, I, and by the way, those people are now starting to sue, and they're yes, getting and they're results. And they're yes, winning. they're winning yeah. cases. Yeah. There, there was a, there was a really interesting story out of Florida uh, just recently where a group of nurses, I believe it was twelve nurses, uh, won, I believe, like ten point three million dollars uh, split between them. Uh, over just a religious exemption, right? Like they they filed a religious exemption and were denied it. And you know there was this huge settlement that, that came their way. So um, I think that's a really good example of a shelling point where culture was not going to be accepting of uh, you know these forcing vaccines on people or forcing masks. Uh, to some extent, you know it was really disappointing to see people go along with it for as long as they did. But uh, eventually the culture won out. Um, now, that's no guarantee that that would always happen, um, but I do think uh, to some extent uh, uh, COVID is a re really good uh, representation of what and how powerful informal norms are. Well, and there's a very, yeah, there's a very interesting thing in this article that caught my attention. Uh, one of the most significant obstacles, I think, to a system like we're describing is the proliferation of lawyers in our country. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about you want to talk about that aspect of this in terms of how some areas even had outlawed lawyers? 
I do not recall that off the top. Of oh, my okay. Head. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it up. Yeah, go ahead and give, go ahead <laughs> so, and give. Uh, your well, so what happened was there were, there were places where they just literally made it illegal to be a lawyer hmm. where, the, where they just said, no, there's not going to be any lawyers here. And the reason, the reason they did that was because they saw the lawyers uh, yeah, as the people mining, who, mining district, yeah. yeah, who were trying to centralize power. And there was actually, if you came into this one territory and, and you were a lawyer or tried to practice law, you were physically punished. Like it wasn't right. just like a fine or you were run out of town. There, there was actually uh, a physical punishment associated with, with being a lawyer. And part of it with this case that you just cited of these Florida nurses is you think about a big settlement like that, right? That's mm -hmm. fine. That makes those 12 or 13 or 15 nurses whole. But that, that's a very inefficient way to solve that problem. Right. Because that, that took years to go through the courts. Some of them probably lost their homes or wound right. up in all kinds of financial trouble. And so the law at the higher levels goes very slowly. Right. Um, and I think that's a big part of this, right? A uh, good lesson, again, the residual claimants, the individuals that are closest uh, to the, the exchange are going to be much more responsive uh, and demand much quicker action uh, than, and be able to get much quicker action uh, than a very top-down, uh, even federalist system, right? Um, yep. Here it is. It's the Union Mining District. Right. And General Riley visited in 1849 to a California camp. And uh, it said, no alcalade, no counsel, no justice of the peace was ever forced upon a district by an outside power. The district was the unit of political organization in many regions long after the creation of the state and delegates from adjoining districts often met in consultation. Moreover, the services of trained lawyers were not welcomed in many of the camps and even forbidden in districts such as the Union Mining District. And here's the resolution. Resolved that no lawyer be permitted to practice law in this district under penalty of not more than 50 nor less than 20 lashes and be forever banished from this district. Indeed. Yeah. No, that's, so, that's, that's intense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's serious business. I'm just looking a little bit below that, um, the interesting uh, sort of quip that it says one early Californian writes, we needed no law until the lawyers came. And there were few crimes until the courts with their delays and technicalities took the place of minors, right? Yeah, uh, and that's a lot of people's experience. A lot of businesses settle lawsuits simply because it's cheaper than, than actually doing what's right. And if you had a more voluntary system where you had arbitration, then you might have people willing to stand up for their rights because the whole thing just builds an incentive. The bigger the law, they're the best, the best buildings in downtown Pensacola, they're all law firms and banks. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we've had our own experiences with law firms so, uh, down in that way. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, yeah. No, uh, that's that's very much the truth nowadays, and especially when you have a much more bureaucratic uh, state like we do. Uh, most modern economies do, to be fair. Um, you have those rules, and you kind of have to have those rules, right? When, yeah. 
when you have so many people in charge of things, you have to have these formal constraints. Otherwise, they'll just run roughshod over you. But that's incredibly inefficient, right? If you just right. reduce the scope of governance to a smaller group of people, uh, or at least to the scale where it's where the off, the balances between the benefits and cost of economies of scale, uh, you know, sort of even out, right? There's there's sort of like an inverted U relationship. If, uh, our listeners are f- familiar with the mathematical concept that up to a point, there's a positive effect from having an economy of scale. Uh, once you pass that point, it becomes more inefficient because the costs increase bureaucratically. It's more difficult to enforce things. Uh, in some cases, uh, bigger is not always better. Uh, there, there's a really interesting example where they tried to build a much larger airplane, but the cost of actually fueling it and ensuring that it could fly uh, greatly outpaced uh, the money that they could charge uh, for tickets. Uh, so it was just entirely inefficient to fly. Um, so there is a downside uh, to economies of scale. It's not always a positive thing. And this is one of the big arguments that you know people just assume because of economies of scale. Or and there's also arguments around natural monopolies and all of that. That's a whole branch of the literature that we would have to dig into. Murray Rothbard and Mises have uh, some retorts against that, especially Rothbard. He kind of addressed the idea of a natural monopoly and how uh, this and how monopolies really can exist outside of um, outside of a, outside of the state. Um, but the the big idea here, right, is that you know when you have all these uh, when you have this huge enforcement mechanism, it becomes very costly to operate. Okay, so I don't I don't feel like we fully wrapped up the shelling. Sure. Um, so, uh, with the shelling, with the shelling points, right? Like this is where we have these agreed upon norms, and this is where we can establish some formal institutions or or informal institutions, uh, contracts between uh, within voluntary arrangements of people. And this is it sort of forms a starting point, if you will. All right, what should the rules be? What's familiar to us? I mean, a lot of these contracts will appoint a president, a vice president, a treasurer, a secretary, whatever. Because that's what we're used to. Um, yeah. And we, we agree not to kill people. And if we kill people, there's a certain punishment or a re- or you have to pay a certain amount of reparations for that. Or if you steal from somebody, all these different rules that we kind of understand, those provide starting points. But there's a lot of things where we don't have shelling points, right? And this is where the variation is going to come in. And this is where competition and experimentation comes in to figure out which systems actually work well. Yeah. So an um, example of a, of a shelling point that's uh, starting to pull apart would be private property. There is yeah, a growing contingency within America that doesn't believe in private property. Yeah. Now, and I, and I, I would argue they're in the minority, but, you know, it's it's definitely shifting. The yeah, old idea that what's yours is yours and you keep it is starting to fray at the edges. Right. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, there, there's very much a resurgence of communist sympathies, uh, especially Marxist sympathies. Um, so property rights are important. I think we can all understand, at least if we have the tradition of, and the economic background, we understand why those are important. Uh, they solve knowledge problems. They solve calculation problems. They provide proper incentives uh, for engaging or for taking care of property and for uh, protecting it. Um, now I will say, I don't think there, I think the shelling point about private property dissolving isn't entirely, um, misguided. 
And the, and the, what I mean by that is the idea of the sharing economy, right? That um, more and more things are not needed to be owned, right? Like it's becoming more and more that you don't necessarily need a car or you don't necessarily uh, need, a, need to own things that will just sit um, in the garage or, you know, not use 95% of the time. And a lot of the, a lot of what makes this possible is reduction in, in transaction costs, which ironically are facilitated by the ownership of private property and uh, people being able to allocate resources to the most highly valued use. But I think that's a real development. And I think that's something um, that there's going to be fewer and fewer things that we need formal uh, prop, property rights over. I mean, again, the big, the big reason for property rights is scarcity, economic scarcity. The economic scarcity wasn't a thing. If we could fully uh, devote resources to every desire that we potentially would want to have, uh, then you don't, there's not really much of a need for property, or at least not property as we uh, have traditionally understood it. Um, as long as economic scarcity exists, uh, private property is going to be needed, uh, even in the sharing economy state, right? Uh, you have to, you still have to have people that own it and know what to do with those resources and know how to allocate those resources so that you generate uh, the most profitable outcomes possible. Well, and uh, the point is that in an anarcho-capitalist society, the people who wanted to organize around a sharing society could. Right, and the people, absolutely. the old fogies like me who just want to own my own truck and, and have it whenever I want, will pay the price for that and enjoy the benefits of it. Yeah, I think it's really important that we distinguish between uh, that they are very much enjoined, right? That uh, political philosophy and economics, I don't think can be uh, analyzed in isolation. This is the mistake that the Marxists made in one, in one direction. Uh, this is also the mistake that the neoclassical uh, utilitarian economists made in the other direction, right? Uh, that we're trying to divorce these two things and we need to look at them uh, in, ta in tandem. That being said, there is still uh, there are still dis distinct fears here, right? On one, on one question, we're asking the economic question: what What is actually going to lead to the greatest well-being and flourishing of individuals? On the other hand, is well, what kinds of systems are we going to allow? And a, and from a libertarian political philosophy perspective, or an anarcho-capitalist perspective, which is sort of that blend of econ and political philosophy, right? Um, we're just saying that you can have whatever kind of system that you want. Um, economically, we're going to say that certain types of systems are probably going to work out better than others uh, for the most part. And I think historically and empirically, this is what we've seen. But you're perfectly able to form a commune, uh, try out different kinds of organization. In some cases, they work out quite well. Um, a good example is worker co-op uh, Mondragon, the Mondragon Corporation. Uh, worker-owned co-op, uh, very large internationally, uh, produce a lot of goods. But on the flip side, you don't see a lot of other examples, right? So uh, a lot of these sort of hippie communes, if you will, uh, tend to be relatively small uh, or they don't tend to scale very effectively. Um, so that there, there's drawbacks to that, but, but they are allowed, right? Like that's a big part of it. If you want to try that and you want to experiment with it, Go for it. Would love to see what happens. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I was pointing to is that one of the things that is appealing about what you're saying is that there's a lot, there'll be a lot of diversity. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what this article points out is that different places 
had different shelling points, things that they all agreed on. And that's what they based their society on. But the system, if it could be called a system, it's kind of a non-system, right? But the, but the flexibility is there for somebody who wants to run a commune and somebody who wants to run a a more private property oriented uh, production. Now I'll, I'll mention one of my favorite books of Plymouth plantation. I know I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth repeating because Bradford came under a Dutch company's um, program. They were funding the whole thing. And so although there were no property rights when they got to America, they, they discovered that they were having trouble with getting people to work because the single guys would say, well, I'm working just the same as the married guy, but I only get food for myself. Whereas the married guy gets food for his wife and his kids and it's not fair. And the married guy would be like, well, I have to work all day and then I have to go home and take care of my wife and kids. So it's not (laughs) fair. Right. Right. And so what Bradford did was he said, all right, we're going to, we're going to act like everybody has private property in the end. It's not yours because it's owned by the company that sponsored us, but we're going to treat it like yours. And whatever you get from that property will be yours. And it doesn't matter whether you have a good year and the next guy doesn't, whatever it's yours and you can do with it, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And of course, one of the things that happened was as the incentives changed, people's behavior changed, right? They suddenly realized, oh, I get to keep the fruit of my labor. Great. Now I'll work harder. And, and the, the book goes on to recount how they had plenty after having starved and frozen many of them to death. I think almost half the colony in the first winter, they were able to turn it around primarily by letting people keep the fruits of their labor. Under the approach that you're talking about, the anarcho-capitalist, excuse me, anarcho-capitalist approach, that would be permissible. That would be fine. There'd be no problem with that. And if the guys next door want to keep doing the commune, they can do that. Yeah. And I think there will be a natural sorting, right? Where, you know, people will um, join areas or join communities that best satisfy their tastes, but they also, also communities that can actually provide sustenance for them and mm-hmm. um, you know they're, they're not going to starve or die in right mm-hmm. uh, when people start to starve and die they start to leave uh, as long as they're allowed to right um, so that's that's a big part of it uh, I think one of the other interesting sort of examples from this research from uh, Anderson and Hill uh, is that up until and, th- and this kind of gets into the relationship between uh, the settlers of the West and the Native Americans, because this is an area where we could see a, uh, quite a bit of violence, especially uh, in later years. Um, one of the things that they point out empirically is that this often occurred because of the state itself, right? Um, prior to 1848, um, and the Mexican, uh, after the Mexican-American War, uh, the standing armies started to shift out into the West. Uh, prior to that, um, the settlers oftentimes engaged with trade with the Native Americans because they didn't have the force of the standing army to back them up and to try to attack them and try to steal uh, what they might have. Uh, It was only when the standing armies came in and suddenly the settlers realized, oh, well, I've got an army that will back me up. I can just go take everything that's theirs and conquer them, right? Um, This is one of the things that's, it's, it's a fact that I think that it's, it's a truth that most people are aware that, you know, that Americans kind of forced the Native Americans 
out to the West, I think it's much less known that a lot of that was driven by the state itself, not by individuals. Um, and to the extent that there's a moral question there, which I believe there is, uh, that's a pretty um, bad mark against the state itself. It's a serious indictment. Yeah. yeah it's a well, and the same, the same is true with most of the laws related to slavery they, they right. were brought they were brought in by states the the right the bias that had existed for a long time the cultural and racial bias that had existed was on the decline among people who were trying to do business because you know there's a certain point at which your ideology doesn't care who's coming into the restaurant to buy the food and so they created all these laws, what, what are called Jim Crow laws in the South, right. to continue to enforce racial segregation, even right. though there was widespread acceptance that, you know, we, even if we've racially biased against these people, we still like to do business with them. Right. I mean, you know, when you can make the, the power of the dollar overcomes personal biases a lot. When you can make money off of someone, you're much more willing to overlook uh, your own personal hatred. Now, this doesn't always apply, right? Like there's, there's, some, there's some people whose hatred is so severe that they don't care how much money they lose. Um, but when you can make your life better off uh, by exchanging with individuals that you may not care for, uh, or you might care for them, right? Regardless, it, it becomes an irrelevant point. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of it is that, and this is, this is the argument about how capitalism can promote virtue within a society, right? Um, there's definitely examples of how uh, capitalism, uh, you know, benefits greedy individuals and things like that. Um, but reputational mechanisms are also a factor in um, your marketability. So I think largely speaking on net, uh, capitalist systems tend to produce more virtue than vice. Yeah, we're definitely in agreement on that. I'd, I'd much rather live in a society that's that's primarily predicated on the exchange of goods and services. I work in a service industry, so I'm acutely aware of how important it is that we go to extraordinary lengths to please our customers because they're literally my next house payment, right? Right. Yeah, and absolutely. so even if even if yeah, that's not a yeah, even if that's not a deeply moral position, it is better in general for society. Because it doesn't make any difference to people who are in the service industry what your skin color is or, right. or what your ethnic background is or what your religious beliefs are, right? Yeah. If, if I can provide a service that you want that you're willing to pay for, then my life is going to be made better and your life is going to be made better. And, and because, because the price mechanism determines how much that's going to cost in the end in a competitive market, it's mutual. Right. I may not be happy about the price of something, but in fact, what we're seeing right now, I mean, we're looking at eight, nine percent inflation year over this mm -hmm. last year. And that's not the fault of anyone who makes stuff. And that's not the fault of anyone who buys stuff that that is squarely on the shoulders of both parties who took advantage of COVID to attempt to buy votes by just literally sending money out to everybody. The, okay. the fact that we just did that. I just find that so frustrating <laughs> that, yeah. that we that we did that. And and what in the process, we also sprayed everything with chemicals, which we had actually been moving away from as a society. We'd all come kind of to agree that, yeah, maybe we need less chemicals in our life. 
And then we threw it all away. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, and as, as far as an indictment goes, we can really indict the Federal Reserve, uh, an institution that's uh, been promoted by both parties for the last hundred years uh, since its existence. I mean, one of the, and this is just historically true, um, it's actually quite interesting, the history of banking in the United States, that uh, Americans were very much opposed for very good reasons, in my, from my view, uh, against a national bank. Uh, when the Federal Reserve came around, they didn't call it the third bank of the, the third national bank of the United States, although that's effectively what it was, right? And I think that was probably politically driven to some extent. Um, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit trail because that's a whole another topic, uh, which may be interesting to do an episode about at some point. Um, but the Federal Reserve has been quite insidious over the last years, uh, last hundred years, uh, especially in the last few decades as they've ramped up money printing and ever since 2008 and since they've engaged in policies of quantitative easing. Um, so yeah, uh, the Federal Reserve is very much to blame for uh, for the inflation rates that we're seeing today. Yeah, which is, I mean, inflation is partly the result of expanding the money supply. And it's also partly a severe misallocation of resources that is driven by what is or is not profitable in a highly inflationary period. Well, and those aren't unrelated concepts, right? Like this is the Austrian critique that um, when you inflate the money supply, you distort um, perceptions of what's profitable and what's not profitable. Uh, so even if people are aware of that distortion, they still have a strong incentive to go invest in things that are not profitable in the long term or not profitable in a truly market setting, uh, which causes misallocations of resources, which eventually causes a collapse when uh, investors realize they're not going to get their payoff. Um, right. Yeah. And we're just, it seems like we're just determined to shorten the time be- between collapses now. <laughs> we're, we're so quick to forget the lesson of 2008, 2000, you know, the crash in 2008, that yeah. we're, we're back at it you know, just uh, a 10, 11 years later, we start back right. at it 12 years in earnest. Yeah. So, I think, um, yeah. And I, I think one of the interesting things about it is that uh, historically, this is the path of nation states, right? Uh, that they devalue their money supply. Uh, and that's what makes them weak. Um, in some ways, there's some optimism. I've talked to some friends of mine uh, that, you know, what. The, the, the days of potentially getting the budget under control are completely past us. That's never going to happen. Um, the, the Not in our thing, current system. Right. No. And the, well, even if it was, if, even if we got all the right people in there and, and you no, no, I'm saying them, not, I'm saying it's systemic. It's not, a, it's yeah. not about people anymore. Right. Well, it's never, well, it's never been, but my point being is even if you didn't have that systemic systemic problem, it's so ridiculously out of control at this point. Um, that even the right policies would take way longer to correct the problem than uh, would, you know, actually be effective. Uh, I think the real thing here is to sort of brace for the coming depression uh, and potential potentially multiple depressions. There's no telling how many more times uh, they can kick this can down the road uh, before it just leads to total collapse. But I think the big lesson here is just to try to educate people so that when that does happen and we're um, trying to rebuild from the ashes, if you will, uh, we take the proper lessons and we try to go forward with something that's much more sustainable, much more, much healthier, 
uh, and that will lead to uh, the greatest well-being for the most um, people in the future. Yeah, so let's say that we accept that the West was not as wild mm-hmm. and that, in fact, it offers some insight mm-hmm. into what's going on. I know that you're not a practical politician, <laughs> uh, but in terms of the problems that we face, because I'm a very practical guy, I, I like mm-hmm. action steps that will lead to some conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond education, which you've dedicated your life to, uh, what what concrete steps would move us in this direction? Do you see, for instance, what's going on in Florida, where the governor is continually standing up for the rights of individuals over the rights of government? Do you see that as kind of a positive trend, a manifestation of a broader acceptance of what you're of what you're saying. And I'm not asking you to endorse the governor. I'm (laughs) saying the kind of steps that he's taking where he's pushing back against the federal government and saying, we're, we're not going to allow this anymore. He's, he's looking at parents and saying, schools are no longer going to be able to dictate to parents. Arizona just passed a law that says the dollars will follow the children to school. Now I know that's not ideal because the government's still involved, but is that a, is that a step in the right direction? I think so. Um, so I, again, I've got mixed feelings about DeSantis um, to the extent that he uh, endorses state control over federal control. I think that's probably a good direction. Uh, the things that scare me more about DeSantis are where he tends to be uh, more nationalist in his policies, uh, more. Um, Give me an example of what you mean by that. Uh, so my understanding, um, and I may be wrong on this, but my general understanding about DeSantis uh, is that he favors a very strong foreign policy, right? Like a very strong mm-hmm. um, mil- interventionist policy abroad. And this is one of the things, uh, you know, I've discussed this with my wife, uh, that, you know, he he's probably a much better governor than he would ever be a president. Um, I think he might be a lot more just disastrous in the federal role. Uh, so would you... On, on, on those margins. Yeah, comparing but, him... And, comparing I would, him and, to- I would, and I would just also say that um, some of the issues that I have with him uh, are in the more autocratic kind of, um, and I can't think of a specific example, but just the general tone seems to be more autocratic than, you know, hey, we're going to allow you to do what you want to do, right? You're going it, to, it's basically just reducing the power of the federal government to the power of the state, which I think is a great first step. I think that's the ideal direction to go. Um, there's still the other part of me that would argue that we don't need powerful state governments either, right? So, um, well, so as a as a resident of Florida who's experiencing this, and granted, I'm not an anarcho-capitalist, so I might have a different perspective, but most of the stuff that I see DeSantis doing is pushing power down, even past himself, to more yes. local governments or parents in the case of education and saying, no, uh, corporations are not going to have the ability to determine what our state does. Uh, even, even the Department of Education is not going to have the ability, or the Justice Department is not going to have the ability to tell parents that they're disallowed from or that they become, quote unquote, domestic terrorists because they go to a school board meeting, which seems to me to be like a very anarcho-capitalist thing to do, to go to the school board and say, hey, you guys aren't doing this right. You're not serving this community. Straighten up or get out. 
yeah no i i i'm i'm fine with that kind of stuff um it's other things like i remember back during the when they were pushing rules about covid and what they were going to allow i remember there was one particular thing where they exempted large corporations that benefited florida um financially and i was like oh that's kind of just the cronyism thing down to the state level right yeah um and there's other positions that he's taken that just it's not that i entirely disagree with him it's just he kind of makes me nervous okay (laughs) okay well i mean uh, i think every politician should make yeah i've been in this Um, business a lot longer than you and i can tell you they all make me nervous and i'm not again i'm not looking for an endorsement but I am right. very interested in the steps that it takes to get there. Cause right. a lot of what you're saying, I find very attractive, even though I'm a sort of a very traditional conservative, right. but I, I recognize that we're in a country of 330 some million people. And so not everybody's going to agree with me. I, I'd, right. I'd like to maintain the freedom to, to posit the ideas that I have. And I feel that being restricted, but yeah, I no, also recognize that there there's no transporter, right? Beam me up, Scotty. That doesn't happen. Every one of these things takes steps to yeah, take place. Sure. And so while we're educating, we also want to be moving in a direction because let's face it, the authoritarians, whether they be Ron DeSantis or anybody else, the authoritarians are on the march. Like they're doing what they're doing. They're saying what they're saying. They're amassing power. And so at right. some point there has to be an effort to push back against that or you're going to lose. Right. And I, and I do think there's some value in that. Um, at least as a defensive mechanism, I don't think it's a good long-term strategy to rely on political changes um, because ultimately those people are going to disappoint you um, and they're going to do the exact things that you don't want them to do. I think, um, I mean, Donald Trump, you know, for the good that he did do, he also did a lot of bad. Um, one of the yeah, so he was not an interventionist yeah. though in yeah. foreign policy, right? Uh, he also he escalated the conflict in Yemen and uh, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. But in and, general, I mean, compared to the last forty presidents, sure. I mean, right? That's not that's a pretty low bar to me. <laughs> Fair um, enough. Fair enough. Um, but the one thing I will I, I, to defend Trump a little bit. I mean, what's going on right now is entirely political and oh my goodness ridic- ridiculous. A, a jury a jury without without any defense of the accused yeah. is it's just I mean, a mockery yeah dave, dave smith has made the comment and i very much agree with him i mean there's plenty of things that you could impeach every yeah. president or, yeah. or charge crimes that you could charge every president with right yeah uh what they're going after him is kind of ridiculous but um that being said uh, you know, one of his big campaign promises was drain the swamp, right? Did he right. drain the swamp? Did not he even made the swamp, he made the swamp 10 times worse in a lot of cases. Not yeah, um, not even close. And and a part of that, it, this is just my sort of political consultant hat, was that he had he had a he had too great of a belief in his own charm and charisma. He's very uh, arrogant. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's kind he, of the nature. Yeah, he really did. And and anybody who runs for president is by definition arrogant, right? You want to you want to be the most powerful man in the world. Yeah, okay. You're, you're not a psychopath. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, um, but as, as uh, presidents go, uh, he did, he did 
sort of make it both more and less acceptable to talk about those things, more in terms of the general population and less in ter- terms of the corporations whose power is threatened, the corrupt corporations. Oh, yeah. I mean, the reason they're going after him is because they're scared of him, right? Like that, and they're scared. They're not so much scared of him as they are um, the change in political preferences of the American people, right? Um, and that, you know, people aren't as willing to go along with the status quo, which I think is probably one of the good outcomes. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, it's also created a lot more division, which yeah. division could lead to really bad consequences as well. Anarchy. It could lead um, to anarchy. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think, so one of the things about anarcho-capitalism, right, is it really tries to advocate for a much more peaceful a solution to getting to the type of society that we want to get to. Right? Sure, it does. Uh, we we don't we don't rely on you know shooting people or uh, you know causing you know riots or whatever. Right. That it's fundamentally right. But the but the aggressor opposed to that. But the aggressor gets to set the rules. Um. Yeah. In the short term, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm talking about the short. Term. Yeah. Um, I'm, but I'm talking. My my focus tends to be much more long term. I that, understand. That being that being said. Um, I will say that I am one thing I can agree with you on very strongly uh, is that the reforms occurring in Arizona and Nevada, I believe as well, uh, with school choice and educational choice are very, very exciting, right? Like it, the, the whole point is, if you're going to steal our money, at least use it the right way, right? Yeah, um, right. yeah the, uh, and there are dangers. I think it's important to admit that once government funding comes into an education system, there are dangers. But here's the thing. Everything is relative to where we are, not to some fantastical ideal. So if we move in the direction of more parental control, more choice, and more accountability, that has to be considered a net positive Mm -hmm. while we watch for the caveat, right? While we're aware of the fact that there may be problems. Yeah. I mean, I think the the real change is going to come from the bottom up, not from the top down. Um, There may be. Well, I think Trump, I'll be honest with you, I think Trump represents that. Because there is absolutely no one in the establishment who likes him. No one. Oh, sure. Yeah. That, yeah. That, well, that, that by definition, then, in the in the system we live in, that's what it's going to look like. That, that's what Trump is what pushback against authoritarianism looks like, even though he has, people say, authoritarian tendencies. But it's what it looks like because you, you can't meet force with non-force. You have to meet force with force. So, so think so of it this way. Here's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't entirely disagree with that. But Yeah, uh, here, here's how I view it. I, I view them as a, as a big sledgehammer. So when you're going to build a new building, if there's a building standing where you want to build your new building, you got to tear down the old building first. And in some ways, that's what Trump was. In the hands of the voters, he was a sledgehammer. He was a and it didn't work, as you pointed out. Like it, the, the, the monster, the Leviathan is still there. In many ways, it's gotten stronger, but it's also been exposed. And so the lines are drawn more clearly. And we'll see, you know, over the next decade, how it plays out. Mm. But I think an argument could be made that he's at least provided a, an opportunity for people to say no. And then, and then your goal, my goal should be to encourage a society that is more sustainable, that is more durable, that is more diverse, that has more flexibility, not less. Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing, the big 
question here is right is it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when uh the united states collapses right i don't think it's going yeah. i i very much see myself living to see the end of the united states i may be wrong about that but uh, i think it's I very, a distinct possibility and i wouldn't have said that a decade ago yeah um and you know it's gonna it it means there's gonna be a period where that's going to be kind of rough, right? As people are figuring out new rules. And I think there'll be better places, the places that adopt voluntary institutions more quickly and kind of start to do their own thing, uh, such as Florida is doing and probably Texas and some other places. I think that they're going to be, it's going to be less severe for them uh, compared to places that remain dependent uh, on the state apparatus. I do think one of the most encouraging things um, if we want to think about talking across the aisle and things like that, uh, and some some point where we might have a little bit more unity, uh, despite the extensive divisiveness we've experienced over the last few years, is the idea of secession is becoming popular um, on both sides. Uh, there's been plenty of leftist Hollywood celebrities and stuff that are have just gone like, look, why are we doing this anymore? Like. Why can't California be its own thing? Why can't we, why can't y'all go do your own thing? We do our own thing. And, and there's probably not many red staters who would oppose them right. leaving. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's, and I don't know, that might be the most beautiful thing I've heard yeah. in the last few years. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Like a and, peaceful, a peaceful resolution, which is by the way, what this article really points out is that this quote unquote wild West actually allowed a lot of flexibility in yeah. that regard when people couldn't get along. Yeah. I mean, one of the most, one of the other really exciting things is just what last year that um, Michael Malice's uh, Anarchist Handbook, which is a book collection of essays uh, from both right oriented and left oriented uh, anarchists, uh, anarchist, anarchist theorists throughout the last couple hundred years, uh, including some very communist oriented people as well. Um, that was at the top of the, Amazon bestseller list across all books for like a good two or three weeks. I mean, hmm. could you imagine that happening 10 or 15 years ago? Um, no. And that's not going to look the same to everybody, um, but that's kind of the point, right? Is it doesn't mm -hmm. have to look the same for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. And that's kind of the beauty of an anarchic system um, that doesn't rely on rulers, but uh, can still form its own rules at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, what are we, uh, what are we thinking about looking at next week? Yeah, I don't know. Um, we could do, uh, I know you had talked about doing the state police in Pennsylvania. We also have pirates. Uh, there's a really interesting book on pirates. Uh, it has okay. received some criticism, but it's an interesting topic. Yeah. Well, I think uh, this has been, I think this has been a helpful for me to understand uh, series and hopefully maybe for other people as well. So yeah, let's continue to pursue that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right well, you, great. you have you have a good first week of teaching. I appreciate that. Uh, and I'll talk uh, to you next week. Be exciting. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Thanks for enjoying another instance of Gordon Miller Time. For more on this podcast, please check out our website. It's gordonmillertime.com. Also, contact us via hosts at itsgordonmillertime.com. Follow us on Facebook and subscribe to our channels on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Substack, Odyssey, or 
wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, please join us on the next episode for further discussions that will help you question your assumptions, explore new ideas, and think more entrepreneurially. And thanks for listening.